All right, so if you're not there, go to Isaiah 36 on your device or on your um, analog Bible, your paper Bible. We're, uh, if you're new, we're studying, we study through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in the book of Isaiah, and uh, what a fruitful study it's proven to be so far. Uh, so that's our text, chapter 36. The topic, the commander of the invading Assyrian army mocks and insults the Jews. The title, adding insult to invasion. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we have come with uh, many expectations uh, and we know, Lord, that you want to exceed those. They may not be the things that, that we think we're going to hear or that we've come to hear, uh, but they are going to be things, Lord, from your heart about your grace and your mercy and your love for us and uh, those that we love. You're going to show us, Lord, how you, it's, you want to give us the desires of our hearts as you bring your heart, our hearts into alignment with you. Um, your spirit, Lord, is here to teach us because you promised he would be, and we uh, take you at your word. I pray, Lord, that each of us would receive something really wonderful today from this word. Simple, but profound. Work with us, Lord, to get through it in a way that makes sense uh, historically and also uh, through application. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It was called Propaganda then psychological warfare, then psyops. They are the tactics intended to reduce an opponent's morale and will to fight. Disinformation, misinformation, manipulation, the dissemination of persuasive messages can do more damage than bullets or bombs. In everyday language, we refer to this as being psyched out or someone getting into our head. Isaiah recorded a textbook example of satanic psyops. The Assyrian army was encamped around Jerusalem. There, Rabshakeh met with Jewish representatives, employing psyops to frighten the Jews into, to, into surrender. There's a major satanic psyop in the third chapter of the Bible. The serpent, later identified as the devil, Satan, did a real number on our parents. He used misinformation, disinformation, outright lies, manipulation, deception, maybe even some shape-shifting to psych them out and achieve his sinister objective. You know what I'm going to say next? The serpent wages psychological warfare against us. He is the accuser, the greatest liar in the history of lying. He's playing a long con on the human race. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you counter Satan's psyops with confidence. And number two, you counter Satan's psyops by repentance. Let's take a look at confidence in the first 10 verses. After 11 years and 21 feature films, the Avengers finally defeated Thanos. It was quite a buildup to their end game. After 35 chapters spanning four kings of Judah, the prophesied invasion by the Assyrian army was at Jerusalem's gates. No city, no city-state, no nation had been able to withstand the Assyrian advance. Humanly speaking, Judah's situation was hopeless. They would have been at the mercy of Assyria if not for the Lord's mercy on them. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah 
and took them. Historians report that they conquered some 46 outlying cities en route to Jerusalem. Assyria was a military juggernaut. The United States is not Isaiah's intended audience. We can, however, glean from him as long as we are careful not to go beyond what is uniquely Jewish. The enemy advance against God's people was destroying city after city. Our enemy, the devil, advances against countries and cities and institutions. Most universities in the United States, for example, were established uh, by people of faith as institutes of faith. Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth were Puritan. The College of William and Mary was the Church of England. Princeton was Presbyterian. Rutgers University was Dutch Reformed. Forbes magazine said of them, for almost all of these and similar elite schools, the answer to grow with the times and the country was to leave their religious legacy behind. Satan is advancing in the United States. In 2019, the Pew Research Center noted, and I quote, in the United States, the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. Satan's psyching people out. The confusing world of gender, transgender, gender dysphoria, etc., has people abandoning basic human biology. It's as if the devil is coming up to folks and saying, has God really assigned your gender? Did God really make you male and female? It's what he did in the garden all over again. And it gets people think, well, maybe, maybe I can be whatever gender I want to be. And it, this has exploded onto the scene. A federal court in Maryland ruled that parents do not have what they call a fundamental right to opt their children out of classroom instruction in LGBTQ matters. It's as if the devil is coming to school boards and judges and saying, has God really given parents the authority over their children? And the answer, of course, that they would give is, well, no, of course not, because parents don't know what they're doing. We do. We should be telling kids what they need to learn, not their parents. If you are old enough or if you studied history, you're familiar with the word blitzkrieg. It was a strategy of rapid advancement against the enemy that was employed by the Germans in World War II. After decades of making important, but I would say slow inroads into biblical Christianity in our society, all of a sudden it seems like we're in a blitzkrieg with the devil, right? I mean, we, we still talk about how things started to go off the rails in the 50s when they took prayer out of school, and then there's a whole sequence of things, you know, over the various decades. And now, it seems to me, at least, every time I, I scope out the news, there's some new strange thing going on, which is completely irrational. And, and you and I would say, well, this is satanic. And others in the world say, no, this is progress. Uh, and and it really, the, the devil's in blitzkrieg mode. Uh, and we just need to know that. We need to be ready for that. We need to keep up, right? Uh, I don't know exactly what that means to each of us, but we need to keep up that, that this, is, uh, this is a battle. Uh, it's a battle for your children. It's a battle for the mind. It's a battle for uh, our country. Uh, and so we need to be up to speed on what's going on. Verse 2, 
Then the king of Assyria sent to Rabshakeh uh, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Now, uh, he is, I'm reading from the New King James Version. This guy is the Rabshakeh. In the version uh, that we read uh, earlier, they call him the royal spokesman because they don't want to keep pronouncing Rabshakeh every few minutes. Uh, but it, it, that's what it means, I guess, or uh, it could mean the commander of the army or could, could be general. But anyway, the Rabshakeh, the spokesman, uh, he comes out and uh, Lachish was the latest city to fall in his advance to Jerusalem. So they're all flushed with victory and now they're at uh, Jerusalem. In verse 3, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, uh, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. We call this an official delegation under a flag of truce. You've seen this reenacted on the big screen. Anytime there's going to be a medieval battle, the representatives come out and they meet midfield. And, you know, the big army is always the mean, vicious army. And then our guys, you know, have all these crazy strategies to win. And, but they try and psych each other out midfield. Uh, and, and then they fight. And so that's what's going on here. They, this delegation comes out. There's really no negotiating, though. It's all the Rabshakeh telling him what they're going to do. And in verse 4, then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war. They're mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? This is Psych Warfare 101. He immediately disrespected Hezekiah, refusing to call him king throughout this dialogue, while simultaneously calling his king the great king. And so this is where he's coming from. We're the people of the great king, and this guy named Hezekiah is leading you. Uh, Who do you trust that you rebel against me? And he says, you've made some plans for war, but... Guys, it's failed you 46 times leading up to this. The Rabshakeh didn't realize it, but he undermined, to a certain extent, his psyop when he not once but twice asked the Jews where their confidence and trust lie, uh, that they would dare to defy him. It's like almost a coded message within the message. A sensitive spiritual ear might hear, remember when you trusted the Lord? It's not too late to trust him again and put your confidence in him. And so those are just words that he shouldn't have used. Where's your confidence? Where's your trust? What used to be in the Lord. We didn't used to have a situation like this when it was. And so maybe there's still hope. And maybe we should seek the Lord. And so, in fact, that is precisely what is going to happen in this narrative. The Jews trust the Lord. And in their renewed confidence in the Lord, they become observers of the battle rather than participants Christians sing about the Lord fighting our battles for us. It isn't a let go and let God do nothing response. It is what we like to call active submission. When Joshua went out to reconnoiter Jericho prior to the battle, suddenly someone else was there with him. And Joshua got up and he said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man there said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua, it says, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? He recognized him as a 
theophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. But I've always liked that. He says, are you for us or against us? And Jesus says, no. What does that mean? It means you're thinking about this all wrong. It's not a matter of getting God on our side and and not being on their side. It's, It's an acknowledgement that he is God and that he has a side. And, and that's the only side there is. And, and Joshua, tasked with this military uh, operation, looking out at Jericho, wondering what he was going to do, what a blessing that the Lord appears to him and say, you know, worship me and we'll get this done. We'll get this thing done. And so we want to have an active submission to the Lord. Not just, well, the Lord will take care of that. We want to fall before him and praise him and thank him ahead of times for his plan. Verse 6, look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh's king of Egypt to all who trust in him. General James Mad Dog Mattis understood psyops. Among his many unsettling quotes, he once said, be polite, be professional, always have a plan to kill everyone you meet. I assume, maybe I'm paranoid, I assume everyone is armed. It keeps you calm. You think about road rage and then you think, eh, I don't want to get my head blown off uh, or knives thrown at me or whatever. And so, and so uh, but, you know, it's like, hey, you, you don't have to have a strategy for killing just about everybody. Uh, Judah had an alliance with Egypt. Egypt, however, was no help. It was another part of the failed plans of the Jews. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, this is interesting because the Assyrians didn't study their enemy. They may have studied other enemies, but they didn't really study the Jews. They thought the high places and the altars that Hezekiah had taken away were places where the Jews went to worship Jehovah. But we know that these were the high places and the altars where they went to worship idols. And so if you see these coming down, you might start thinking that there's a revival going on, or at least Hezekiah is trying to do the godly thing and Israel or Judah, when God is on their side, is a, is a group that you do not want to fight. Uh, and, and so they were ignoring this and thinking, well, you know, Hezekiah is blaspheming his own God, but quite the opposite is true. When Apollo Creed was going to fight Rocky the first time, uh, he didn't train. He was all into the finances of it and the philosophy of it. And they said, your opponent's a left-handed guy. And he goes, yeah, no big deal. Don't worry about it. He did worry about it later when he almost got beat out of the championship. But, uh, and so you need to know your enemy. And, and we need to, to know a little bit about the strategies of Satan as we go through some of this stuff. Uh, but anyway, they didn't study them. And had they studied them, they might have been a little bit more careful, maybe even humble, uh, to wait on the Lord. The Lord had sent them, but to wait and say, hey, is, is everything still the same? Is, is this the plan still? Because like I said... When God, is, when God was with his people, no one could touch them. 
If you Google the strategies of Satan, you're going to be directed to hundreds and thousands of sites that are all over the map. Each of them has its own unique list. I mean, you, you know, you think, well, I'm going to go and, and everybody has the same five strategies of Satan, but no one has the same ones. They all look at it from a different angle. So what I think you should do instead, you're going to want to study Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. That's the famous passage about the armor of God we are to wear in order to, it says, stand against the wiles of the devil. Go through the articles of your uniform and ask yourself questions like this. Is there something I am not wearing, some piece of armor that I'm not wearing? Do you have on the helmet of salvation so that uh, you are protected from the things that you hear and that you see in your mind is set on things above, or do you kind of, you know, do you freak out, do you leave it at home maybe? Because you know you're going to be out doing some things where you, you don't really want that protection uh, and, and all, you know, or maybe you just forget and leave it behind. It's only happened a couple of times in the 25 years I've been a chaplain, uh, but a couple of times the uh, police officer has forgotten their sidearm when they report for duty. And uh, I don't need to tell you how embarrassing that is. Uh, and stuff, but uh, it's, you know, and so maybe, is it possible that we might forget the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? I don't know. That's a question to bring before the Lord. Something I got into last uh, service, uh, you know, most of us carry a, our, you know, 1,500 Bibles in our phone or 3,000 on our iPad or something like that, and you don't carry a paper Bible much anymore, or a leather Bible, or maybe it's just me because I'm a sinner, uh, but anyway... Uh, but, you know, it's, it's cool. But maybe you, have, maybe you have a desk where you work, you know, and your cubicle is, can be seen by others. Or, you know, you have some kind of a workstation. You should have a Bible out. The biggest Bible you can find, you can find. Uh, you know, just, there's a ton of huge Catholic Bibles at every thrift store, you know. <laughs> they're, they're like, they, they're huge. We had one at home when I was a kid growing up. It, w- it wouldn't have fit on this podium. It was, gi- it was gigantic, you know, and stuff. It weighed 1,000 pounds, had pictures of all the apostles in the back, and, you know, and I, th- I don't know where they got them, but they, you know, uh, Shroud of Turin stuff, I guess. But anyway, uh, just get yourself a big Bible and put it there and, and just, you know, hope for conversation, if nothing else. Uh, if you work at a place where there's other Christians, get together with them. Say, hey, why don't we get together once a month, once a week, have breakfast, have lunch, meet in the break room, have a little Bible study or just prayer meeting. You, people will catch on to that. And, and you know, uh, either they'll tell you you can't do it, which is a great way to get persecuted, you know. Uh, it is. It's a, you know, it's, you know we, the rest of the church in the world is getting persecuted like crazy, right? And, and so if your boss says to you, you can't have a Bible study, oh, I'm going I'm to sue you. Uh, you know, just do, move into something else. Keep, keep. You know, keep creative about it. But there's ways that you can take your sword with you other than thinking, oh, I need to be in God's word, which is true, and I need to read God's word and understand God's word. Take God's word that we have and bring it around with you. Uh, and, and, you know, and do stuff like that. Put bumper stickers on your car. Put bumper stickers on your forehead. I mean, do, do whatever you need to. You know, to, to say, we used to call, uh, it was a guy who was an economist, he, he'd call your clothing ministering currency. You could buy one-way socks, Anybody have a pair of one-way socks in the day? Yeah, you just, because one way, Jesus, right? And they, uh, you can have Ben Born Again t-shirts and stuff. So get into it. Promote these things uh, and, and, you know, uh, forget the Google thing and do it on your own. So verse 8, 
Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to part, uh, to put uh, riders on them. Uh, Rabshakeh demanded tribute as public demonstration that Jerusalem was conquered. It's common to humble or even humiliate those you've conquered. At the end of World War II, Emperor Hirohito of Japan was forced to publicly declare that he was not a living god and that the emperors were not gods. Uh, whether you see it as humiliating or humbling, I don't know, but, but it was one of the things that he was made to do. I think of the offer of 2,000 horses as pure sarcasm. He's saying that Assyria was so powerful, it would give Judah 2,000 horses to even the battle. In other words, it's like, hey, we want to fight you guys, we want to destroy you guys, but it's no fun for us, and so we'll give you some horses so that at least, you know, it evens the odds a little bit, and we can have a little bit of fun before we slice your throats. And, and I mean, this is all like, this is all freak out stuff. And, and I mean, if you're Judah, and, and I mean, this army has just destroyed 46 of your cities. It's responsible for having ruined and overrun and destroyed the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And neutralizing Egypt and all these other vassal states around, and now they're at your door, and this guy, the Rab Sheikh, is like, hey, I just, I've got such a speech for you. You guys are going to be in so much trouble tomorrow. How then will you rebel, uh, repel one captain of our least men and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? This is like a playground taunt. That's like telling somebody, I can beat you up with one hand tied behind my back. And, and you run. Verse 10, have I now come up without the Lord to destroy this land? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. In chapter 8, we read, inasmuch as these people talking about the Jews refused the waters of Shiloh, meaning they didn't want what God had for them, he says, the Lord will bring over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. The Lord did indeed use nations to discipline the nations of Judah and Israel. And this was the worst possible taunt because it was true and the Jews knew it was true. Their own God, Jehovah, said, you refuse to repent after years and years and years and my long-suffering waiting and all, the Assyrian army is coming for you to discipline you, giving you one last opportunity to repent. But nevertheless, after all this guy had said, he looked at them and he said, your God sent me to destroy you. And I mean, that's, that's got to hurt. You might think it's strange for me to say this, but the Jews were in a great spot. There was no earthly help. They must rely upon heavenly hope. There was no one to call upon but the Lord. This is a repent or die moment. If you feel like you're involved in psychological warfare, it's because you are. Somewhere in the devil's op against you is going to be a message, a reminder, a teaching, an encouragement, an exhortation. Listen for it and watch the devil's plan backfire. You counter Satan's psyops by repentance. His, uh, he is Captain Kenneth Rich. His primary military specialty is psyops. He earned his psychology degree from Berkeley. He worked on various research projects involving the inducement of 
paranoia by means of low frequency radio waves. If there's a low frequency hum, it could give you paranoia, but we have all this equipment here. Maybe that solves the dilemma of my life. But anyway, uh, he enlisted in the army and was posted to the Deceptive Warfare Center, the DWC at Fort Bragg, and there he continued his pioneering work in the field of wave-induced behavior modification. His colleagues call him Psych-Out. You can purchase his action figure on eBay for around 50 bucks. I'm talking about one of the characters on G.I. Joe, a real American hero. See what I did there? I psyched you out. Maybe. You guys ever do the handshake? You ever do the psych handshake? You go to shake somebody's hand, and when they grab your hand, psych. Do you remember that? Who remembers that? Come on, I want to know right now who remembers that. All right, several of you are culturally astute. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rebshekah, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. And don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Morale was already at an all-time low as soldiers and citizens would look out upon this seemingly invincible foe. And then to hear all of this in, in their own language and understand it was uh, deflating, to say the least. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not let the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste? In the 2011 feature film, The Help, who remembers The Help? You recall how Minnie, the maid, dealt with her master? She served her former boss a poop pie, a poop-filled version of her famous chocolate pie. Poop pie would be on Judas menu if they were determined to resist. Now, we're laughing, but man, when you were under siege, all the army had to do that was surrounding you was wait you out because at some point you would run out of food and the water. Now, Hezekiah had taken care of the water situation, but at some point you run out of food and it's, you know, they, people eat their own poop and then they start eating each other. Uh, you know, and uh, because you got to eat, right? And so uh, this is, uh, you, don't want, you don't want your people hearing this, right? I mean, here's this guy, here's this, this rab shaker, and he said, hey, you guys are all going to be eating poop tomorrow unless you surrender, and you might be anyway because we like to kill people. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. This is a second misspeak here in verses 13 through 15. The reason Assyria was at the gates was precisely because they had quit trusting in the Lord. Their deliverance was one prayer of repentance away. Alan Ridpath said, it is Satan's delight to tell me that once he's got me, he'll keep me. But at that moment, I can go back to God and I know that if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me and every one of you will eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cisterns until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Extreme evil is lurking in these words. It almost sounds pleasant, but it's the worst thing yet. 
The Rabshakeh promised the Jews could remain on their land, be a nation, live in peace. But with absolutely no segue, he tells them that they're also going to be relocated. No longer in their land, they would intermarry with Assyrians and other conquered peoples. And the plan was eventually they would not be, uh, there would not be a Jewish nation anymore. They would intermarry themselves out of their own ethnicity. And this was the Assyrians, this is what the Assyrians did to people. They assimilated them. They're like the Borg. They would assimilate them uh, so that they had no identity of their own. And this uh, part of the psych out smacks of the devil because for centuries he has been trying to exterminate the Jews from planet Earth, targeting them specifically. And in the future, he'll do the same. In the midst of the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, right in the center of it, the man who is the, we call the Antichrist, going to be empowered by the devil to go into the rebuilt Jewish temple. He declares himself God. Declares himself God. And Jesus says of this event, he goes, this is the abomination that Daniel spoke of, Daniel the prophet. When you see this, he's talking to to Jews in and around Jerusalem and Judea. He says, when this happens, don't go home. Don't grab anything. Don't pack a suitcase. Just run as fast as you can. Drive as fast as you can. Get to the mountains. Get to the rock city of Petra because the devil is coming after you like a flood in the wilderness. It'll be Satan's last effort to kill every last Jew. Because if he can exterminate all the Jews... God cannot keep his promises to them. And if God cannot keep his promises to the Jews, then he's not really God. Maybe Satan is God after all. That's his reasoning. And so uh, this, is, this is terrifying what he's suggesting here. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us, verse 18. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? Of Arpad, where the gods of Shepavarim, indeed they have uh, delivered Samaria, had, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now, Sennacherib was a serious king. God after God, we would call them idols, of course, but God after God had fallen. The Rabshakeh was confident the Lord would also fall, but he doesn't say, our gods, the gods of Assyria, defeated the gods and prevailed. He says, Rab, uh, Sennacherib will prevail against the gods, including the Lord. And so what he's really saying is, Sennacherib is God. He's greater than all the gods of all the peoples, and he's greater than the Lord, the God of Israel, and he will conquer. Back in chapter 14 of Isaiah, we saw Satan say, I will be like the Most High. He wants to be God so bad that he uh, moves leaders and, and kings and rulers to play God and to think that they are God and to believe that they are the ones that are moving history forward when it's actually the Lord. It's sort of a disease when you consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything, but I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out. Those are the words of George Soros from a 2004 L.A. Times interview that has just resurfaced. It's not unusual for a man to think that he's some kind of a god. That's what got us in trouble in the Garden of Eden, that we would be like God. 
Verse 21, but they held their peace and answered him, not a word for the king's commandment was, don't answer him. Albert Barnes writes, there are circumstances when it is proper to maintain a profound silence in the presence of revilers and blasphemers, and when we should withdraw from them and go and spread the case before the Lord. Verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, told him the words of the Rabshakeh. These insults contributed to Judah's repentance. They tore their clothes. And in the very next chapter we read, and so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And so this marvelous psyop, so well planned out, so well scripted, it, it reads almost like a TED talk, right? It's just point after point after point, and it, it keeps building to a, a terror. It, it's, it's the most amazing thing. And what the Jews do is they tear their clothing, symbolizing the rending of their heart and the desire to, to return to God. And so it, it, the best that the devil ever has cannot overcome the broken spirit of a human being trusting in the Lord. You need to know that first of all. This outward manifestation of wearing sackcloth, obviously another symbol of inward repentance. This is a bigger deal than you think of. I don't want to get lost in the details, but when you were a Jew uh, living at this time, you didn't have a big wardrobe, right? You had one tunic, probably, and a few underclothes, nothing fancy. And for you to go around tearing your garment all the time, this is rough. Oh, honey, again? I mean, how many sew, yeah, how, how much can you sew that up, really? Some of you have been poor, right? Shoes with holes in it, you know, duct tape is an amazing thing, right? I mean, it just, you just can't afford anything. When Pam and I first got married, we were so stupid. We used silver dollars to buy hamburgers, you know, and so I thought they were actually worth more than a dollar at the time, but anyway, who knew? Uh, but, you know, and so, you know, it's, uh, now I'm completely lost in what I'm talking about. Anyway, no, sackcloth, yeah. And so, you know, then you got sackcloth on. Then they would throw ashes on themselves, not like a little cross ash or something, you know, but, I mean, just ashes from the fire. Men would pull on their beards and pull out their hair. I mean, the Jews really knew how to repent. The outward manifestations of what was happening inwardly. And this is so amazing. This is the most amazing thing to me is that the, the, this fantastic psyop failed because it, it had this kind of underpinning that if you turn to the Lord, you know, he will hear you and he will strengthen you. And that's what's going to happen every time. C.S. Lewis said, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and going back to the right road. If you're not in Christ, if you're an unbeliever, you're on the wrong road. It's a broad path that leads to destruction. Good news, Jesus said if he died on the cross, he would draw you to himself, that he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. What must you do to believe or to be saved is simply to believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian today, you need to believe that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and that the Lord is offering you a right standing with God, and he will take upon himself your sins.
If you're a believer, Satan will try every possible psyop to stumble you or to have you turn aside. Keep following the roadmap that God's given you, the Bible plus whatever else he's given you for your own life. Follow that, walk with the Lord, discover the good works that he has before ordained that you should find. Be a normal Christian, I guess is the bottom line. What does that mean? Pray, read your Bible, go to church, figure out ways to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Simple, straightforward, powerful stuff that all of us can do and that the Lord will help us do. He will motivate us to do it. He will empower us to do it. Uh, And we're just along for the ride.